my god. Yeah, I mean, the, the diagrams are fascinating, and it's its own sort of nightmare discussion as far as I'm concerned. So if we get that far, I can just assume that's all we'll be talking about for the rest of the time. So we won't get any further, I suppose is how I would put it. Fortunate they're near the end. I think they... Very they fortunate. Don't they what? Isn't that the last... Is that the last paragraph? It might be the last paragraph, actually. Now we may not get there today. We'll see. This is going to take as long as it takes. Uh, we'll make our way slowly through, and I guess I'll slowly kick us off so we can actually get to a uh, proper reading on Chapter 4, Section 1, because this is the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of anti Oedipus. Uh, today we finally move into the Introduction to Schizoanalysis, the final chapter of the book, which... Uh, as I've been saying through most of this, we're slowly seeing more and more threads that began being weaved earlier in the book, coming together, layering in over and over and over. Uh, why we spent so much time in Chapter 2 discussing psychoanalysis. Why we've spent so much time in Chapter 3 discussing how semiotics operates and how our unconscious is produced through the very nature of communication and inscription and all of these things, starting to see how it all comes together. And that is... Uh, off we go. So, uh, fuck it. Let's do this thing. Um, uh, as always, uh, if you like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon, uh, whatever DGQC. It's perfect right now. We actually don't need money. Every dollar helps us head towards our goal of being profit neutral, which is exactly what we are, where we spend exactly the money that comes in, which is perfect. Um, but, uh, let's see. Any uh, other things? Uh, we're working on our divagations conference. If you have anything that you want to contribute to the idea of wandering, which is the entire point of schizo wandering, it's a better model than an erotic on a couch. Um, we intend to really break down what wandering actually means. If you want to help with that, we're in the divagations channel here on our Discord. Uh, you can find us uh, by Googling. For now, however, I'm going to go ahead and uh, share and uh, start reading out. Section 4.1, if you want to read along with me. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? But also, the father and the mother, or the child? Psychoanalysis acts as if it were the child. The father is sick only from his own childhood, but at the same time is forced to postulate a parental pre-existence. The child is sick only in relation to a father and mother. This is clearly evident in the primal position of the father of the horde. Oedipus itself would be nothing without the identifications of the parents with the children, and the fact cannot be hidden that everything begins in the mind of the father. Isn't that what you want, to kill me, to sleep with your mother? It is first of all a father's idea, thus Laius. It is the father who raises hell and who brandishes the law. The mother tends to be obliging. We mustn't make this into a scene. It's only a dream, a territoriality. Levi Strauss puts it very well. The initial theme of the key myth is the incest committed by the hero with the mother. Yet the idea that he is guilty seems to exist mainly in the mind of the father, who desires his son's death and schemes to bring it about. In the long run, it is the father who appears guilty through having tried to avenge himself and it is he who is killed. This curious indifference toward incest appears in other myths. End quote. Oedipus is first the idea of an adult paranoiac before it is the childhood feeling of a neurotic. 
So it is that psychoanalysis has much difficulty extracting itself from an infinite regression. The father must have been a child, but was able to be a child only in relation to his father, who was himself a child, in relation to yet another father. Um, actually, a fairly crisp paragraph talking about one of the very underlying issues that they brought up very early on with the nature of Oedipus. Um, the, the joke being that the father uh, is ultimately really the one who starts this, if you want to really talk about it. But the, the, the blame actually gets visited on the child, who ultimately he was a child himself, and he was, he was in this position of wanting to you know, kill his father and fuck his mother. That's why his father was actually a neurotic and an issue like that. But of course, he was also a child. And it just becomes infinite, sort of forever, this, this quasi-cause of uh, being a, the child that causes everything uh, is very chicken and egg for the case of Oedipus. Um, it's a really crisp paragraph. Um, please, if you have uh, questions or thoughts on this, uh, please open up. I guess where to start, right? Uh, one of the things that interests me about this paragraph um, and like you were saying, it's, it looks like it's a very simple paragraph, and it is very straightforward, right? Um, the interesting thing to me, though, is if you start walking out in terms of like disjunction and that, right? Uh, what I think they're, or at least where we can start to understand this in terms of three syntheses, is there is, um, in fact, there's a there's a really good line that I say earlier on, right? Society creates its own delirium by recording it. Uh, by recording desire and that, something that effect. And I think that's where they're starting here. Um, so much so that this point about the child and the father, well, the child and the father, but the child and the parents too, um, you can see them calling to attention things like the zones, right? The socius and the BWO. But also there's a problem of an exclusive disjunction at the affiliative and the aligned level, right? The problem of father and son or rather father or son, on the distribution of guilt, which we're getting into kind of a wonky chicken or the egg problem in that manner. So it's an easy opening. It's, it's, it's not as, I think, difficult as a lot of these, uh, or a lot of the other ones have been in the previous uh, sections leading up to this, for sure. Um, but I want to make sure that if anyone has questions, we get through it, because it's, it's just on the edge of maybe you might have some things, which is fine. So if uh, you have anything... Don't hesitate. Uh, you can uh, type it out in chat as well if you would like me to uh, respond that way. Um, but I can continue because we're about to move into what Jack was talking about, which is the delirium. So please, if you have something. Yeah, I'll throw one more thing out there then. So there's the point that they make about the disjunct and the conjunct, right? So if we do have this problem of kind of the exclusive disjunction and the distribution of guilt, um, where they're pushing us into, I think, with this question of delirium is going to be that the way that that uh, affects the representation of subjectivity, right? That um, the distribution of guilt and the, the, uh, the consumption and consummation of guilt, the, so that's what it was, right? This is starting to come together as a form of delirium. And as we discussed again in uh, Oedipus at Last, uh, the previous section, we're talking about the nature of how capitalism invests the entire social field within the family. Uh, the edipalization of all of this uh, ultimately stems from capital pushing all this axiomatization to the parents, to the child, to the, the carving of things. They describe it 
uh, multiple times the three plus one, uh, the, the corner folded, things like that. It's just wonderful uh, imagery. But to continue, because here's where it starts getting fun. How does a delirium begin? Perhaps the cinema is able to capture the movement of madness precisely because it is not analytical and regressive, but explores a global field of coexistence. Witness a film by Nicholas Ray, supposedly representing the formation of a cortisone delirium, an overworked father, a high school teacher who works overtime for a radio taxi service and is being treated for heart trouble. He begins to rave about the educational system in general, the need to restore a pure race, the salvation of the social and moral order. Then he passes to religion, the timeliness of a return to the Bible, Abraham. But what, in fact, did Abraham, Abraham do? Well, now he killed or wanted to kill his son, and perhaps God's only error lies in having stayed his hand. But doesn't this man, the film's protagonist, have a son of his own? Hmm? What the film shows so well, to the shame of psychiatrists, is that every delirium is first of all the investment of a field that is social, economic, political, cultural, racial, and racist, pedagogical, and religious. The delirious person applies a delirium to his family and his son that overreaches them on all sides. Uh, the investing of the social field, as we were just talking about, as, as Jack was just mentioning, this idea of the Oedipus, the, the paranoiac of the parent. Uh, he mentions Laius in the previous chapter, the previous uh, paragraph, who raises hell and you know, murders, or goes out and kills, does all these things. The father raises hell, the mother being there. The, the core element behind all of this at, at the base layer is the delirium. And the delirium begins first by being invested socially. It's the first thing desire does is it invests within that uh, sort of space and how these things sort of get formed. Um, the, the way that the, the codes move within the space uh, pushes towards that, the, the social delirium of all of that. I love it. Um, they did spill, misspell Nicholas Ray. Uh, there is a H in there. It's fine. It's, it might be the OCR. Also, it's hard to know uh, if, if they necessarily did uh, fuck that up. But uh, his old films, uh, Nicholas Ray did a, a ton of stuff. Uh, the, they Live the Night, did Rebel Without a Cause, which is, I think, going to be uh, coming up and having that conversation. I think we're even talking about that now. Uh, Johnny Guitar, like this, the nature of um, sort of that sub-working class character or heroes uh, that really came out during that era, he shaped. And uh, they're very much talking about this here, the, the way that the, the father angry, wants to restore his race, wants to get back to the way things are, wants to get back to Abraham, ultimately, all of these things, these investments of his desires. It's a delirium first. It's a great set of lines and references. Uh, I think that uh, it just indicated that it's a multi-generational conflict, that the father is sick because of the way things were as, as well, right? So, No, I, I that's know, actually... That's actually the, the point they're making is, is the opposite, that there is an infinite regression if we go down that road, that, uh, uh, oh, the child is oedipalized because the father, the neurotic, puts him in the position. Well, he does that because his father. But 
this is not this this infinite regression doesn't really have an end because it it gets to the position of the chicken and the egg which came first the child who wanted to kill the father or the father spited by his his son the it's not really how things work through this sort of weird genetic assumption that both sort of came about together very often and they talk about this earlier uh, psychoanalysis actually puts the child as the originator of where the oedipus complex comes from that uh, it's the child's fault, which is a, on its face almost patently humorous, especially how they break it down. Is the child doesn't have connections. They're formed by the social strata that the, the parents lay in front of them. And so to blame the child is incredible. But then if that's the case, then we can't, we blame the child when the father was a child too. So it's the father's fault equally. And that's, that's to them uh, sort of an absurdity. Uh, they're very much pushing instead saying the social stratas that we deal with, the, um, the social fields that are immediately there, social, economic, political, cultural, racial, pedagogical, religious, this is actually where a delirious person first applies the delirium to his family and his son that overreaches them on all sides. The, the, the father, the mother, the whatever you might be who's raising the child, you're you're taking in the social order of things and applying those rules to the child. You're applying those rules to the family, and these rules overreach us in every single direction. They start first, though, with the delirium of the investment in the social field. Well, does the Abraham story, uh, you know, uh, mean that it is a kind of um, it's the um, it originates in the uh, mythology, the despotic mythology? of, um, you know, of this religious belief in this, uh, you know, the God, the transcendent God that, uh, that is the father figure that, um, that maybe is the, is the beginning of that. Maybe. Well, I, well, uh, I, go ahead, Jack. I, I think, I think you got to look at it in terms of a social problem, not a religious one per se. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's that, God per se, although it's worth understanding the conditions for such a thing, right? Because this could be, and they, they point this out, it can apply to any religion because of its social uh, context. And that conditionality, like you're saying, would be the despotic. But in doing so, right, um, that's a condition for such problems to eventually materialize. Uh, with capital, one of the interesting things going on here, right, is that you get the familial, um, because right, we're in, a, we're in a different socius here. You get the familial kind of in simulation of the economical, right? And that's because capital takes over the, um, the second synthesis, right? You get the, the affiliative and the alliant through forms of capital, uh, the D of X over D of Y problem, right? And as you're going through that, that means that uh, actual affiliation, actual alliance, right? are happening in terms of basically cash and things are produced in that way. But the familial simulates that. And this is the point they're starting to drive into that any holy family of God, right, especially in this in this circumstance, is simulating that exclusive disjunction at the uh, the economical level. And in doing so, right, the subjectivity of the familial is is part of the, that conjunct is part of the disjunct um, 
of that economical aspect, which is a long way to say that the social is going to condition the familial because they're coextensive since um, one is a simulation of the other, right? The familial is a simulation of the economical here uh, and ultimately the second synthesis. So in doing so, right, it's not, uh, and, and this is to return to the original point, we want to be careful to understand a religious investment as a social, um, from, from a standpoint of the social, so as not to say that this is, um, like to not do the thing where we just say, like this is religion getting in the way. This is the way that th that, that which conditions any religion, right, um, is producing these, uh, these matters altogether that will then go on to construct any religion. I, I would like, add, I, just real quick, because I have a slightly different take that I think might be, maybe it's an oversimplification, but the, the phrasing here around Abraham specifically, because there's a little bit of a rant about Abraham in, uh, I, I'm 99% sure we're talking about Rebel Without a Cause here. Um, I haven't watched it in too long. Um, the rant about Abraham specifically is, I think, inst uh, brought in here as a wry joke because it's literally the opposite of the Oedipus complex. Um, the idea being that he's going back and calling back to what Abraham did. Well, what did Abraham do? Well, he wanted to kill his son. Perhaps the only error lies in having stayed his hand, but doesn't this protagonist have a son of his own? So it's that his fantasy, his delirium is almost about the literal opposite of instead of killing your father and fucking your mother, it's killing your son. His his desires, his drives, these things are, are in opposition to what seems to be a determinant reality in the nature of the father-son relationship. And that's kind of the joke here, that these investments are social, these investments are around us, and they are uh, ultimately causing these deliriums that are invested contingently around them rather than these weird, large, transcendent concepts. I'm, I'm not sure if it is the opposite. Um, because in Oedipus, the father also wants to kill the son, but the killing of the father is justified through the guilt of the father wanting to kill the son. Right? Right, but, but that's the line of, that's the line they have here, but maybe God's only error was having stayed his hand. That's the, that's what Oedipus did. Oedipus stayed his hand. Like, again, this is a reference towards, like, that kind of thing. Uh, playing towards this about the protagonist ultimately wanting to kill his son, wishing it could kill his son. I, it feels like it's intentionally done there. That's again, going back, these things are investments that are social. His, he wants to go through these processes. He wants to go through this. How I read it is that that's the primary, if there's a cause, the primary cause is the social field that is causing these investments in the deliriums that inform them. Yeah. Well, Do you think that? Yeah, go ahead. I just, I just think that in a social context, it'd be important to take a look at that. It's kind of an evolving socius. And so what the psychologists of the late 1900s were considering, uh, there may have been like social uh, constructs, you know, social uh, disparities between generations that are less prevalent in today's era. So, I mean, Maybe when we're looking at this, particularly in, in relationships with the family, um, that they may be right about generational conflict, but the I don't think that it can be necessarily be carried straight up to the point of uh, 
like you know modern era i don't think i think it's kind of we're almost like kind of looking at a classical like a historical uh socius there also well to to comment so so first of all that's i like i like where you guys are taking that and brooks that's an excellent observation about the the father and the son right and that is like the whole first paragraph i think i think the thing they're doing there to play on that is Right, so I mean that is the, the Oedipus story, right? Is Laius has to, Laius will try to kill um, Oedipus so that Oedipus doesn't grow up to kill him, but obviously that doesn't work out because uh, the servant um, supplants the, yeah, the, the I, I don't want to say the robbing of the child, but the servant prevents Oedipus from being killed, like you're saying. It's uh, it's actually very similar to Abraham's hand being sta uh, stayed by God except that it's stayed by just a lowly servant at the fort. Um, but I think the thing that happens there then is, right, so what's going on? It's that psychoanalysis has a presupposition um, that they kind of talk about, but that they also marginalize, right? This is sort of the unconscious of psychoanalysis, is everything they're putting on the father in order to start with the child. And by doing so, because you get the three plus one all at once. It doesn't come. It's not like you have a child and then you go on, right? You have to you get the family all at once, especially because it's a simulation. Um, uh, in doing so, right, so not only is that a marginality to psychoanalysis, but it's one that actually is doing a lot of stuff because of the social investments, like you're saying. And those social investments are playing out, um, in this case, through through a... Uh, yeah, they don't name the character, but uh, through Nicholas Ray's film. Uh, we're asked, it's worth mentioning here too, because we're getting into and the word delirium is going to be thrown around a shitload. And it has been already, but this is where it's going to be really significant. Um, the use of delirium here is uh, unique because it's specifically being translated from the original French, where they also use the term delir, uh, which means uh, uh, hallucination. Uh, the 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 meaning of delirium in this context is not a thing that I think people have settled heavily on. Uh, it's it's not a fun one. Uh, but so because no, Normatic is asking what is understood by delirious in the context of cognitive science, is delirious for the child needed to form a mental structure to grasp concepts? We're, we're talking about um, the the hallucination that the father has that there is a pure race that we need to get back to the the larger stories of representation, I would almost equate it to, um, I know a few of you are in our logic sense group, feels like phantasm uh, a little bit to me as we've been getting deeper into what a phantasm is and how it plays. Um, the, the story that links things that doesn't have its own origination, that doesn't connect to anything. The, the deliriums here that are invested, every delirium is this story told within the social field that is finding ways that these elements are connected and telling the story between them that really isn't a thing it's it's a thing uh but it's not like real it's a hallucination it's a delirium it's not necessarily a negative thing either to Deleuze and Guattari it's not about us getting away from deliriums and seeing the world for what it is or some nonsense there's there's great power in deliriums they even greatly talk about this actually a few times so there's a lot of really interesting sort of uh, ways that it's used, but I wanted to see if anyone wanted to expand on that because the concept of delirium is itself difficult. 
uh, the interview, I usually read that because um, there's this great piece that I think is actually called "What Is Delirium?" That's in, that they did for Semiotest. Um, but yeah, I think the, the the thing we can say right now is uh, it's not delirium in the typical use, right? That someone is like um, somewhere between hallucination and uh, the non-hallucinatory right reality. Mm-hmm. Um, like you're saying, I think it is probably more in between the 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 tension of the unconscious producing things syllogistically, and then the representation and the paralogisms of that, right? Between the uh, basically between the BWO and the associates, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when you start walking in, um, and we'll do this as we go, right? The breakdown, the breakthrough, the you know the affiliative and alliant through capital, right? That um, those kind of disjunctions and and the subjectivity that comes with them, right? Just like we're seeing here, right? Where you know the economical aspect of working at a, working as a high school teacher in a radio taxi service, right? That economical aspect, that social aspect, coming with the subjectivity of um, of a guilt, right? And and the kind of debt that comes with that guilt, and also the way that that's and a typical psychoanalytic move would be to say that this is a projection onto the family, but it's a simulation actually of that um, uh, of that guilt and everything at the familial level. Can I jump in real quick? Please, please. Yeah, that was um, me. Yeah. I I had, I kind of had the same question for the past couple of sections, but going into kind of this area, I started to get reminded of um, earlier when they would talk about global persons, um, like molar aggregates, and like you know what the the global person it's um it's like you start with the self-contained idea, like this is this is what like a woman is and this is how they act, or this is how the child is they wants to kill the father and have sex with the mother, so that's how he'll act, and if the paranoid father thinks of his child as that kind of global person and of course he's going to develop that kind of anxiety you know and the same thing is said what really like ticked it off for me is when they were talking about the education system in general um it's that same kind of like application or uh paralogism as they say that's at work is the the paranoid father is not not actually like concerned or invested into like a specific thing that's happening with the education system it's just these kind of uh attributes he's kind of applying to it in abstract and it's bad and we need to return to a higher unity that's closer to the self-contained ideal and that's why i included that article too because it's just really coincidental um the the guy highlights it i don't even think he's ever read the loser guatari but he talks about how uh um, people at like the turn of the 18th century <laughs> were, were concerned about Illuminati uh, coming to America uh, with anti-Christian values that would destroy the Christian way of life and all these things. Um, and the same thing with the, the New Deal in the 30s that it was going to destroy like um, uh, whatever kind of way of life and not any particularity of it, you know, just kind of the, the, the whole thing. Well, it's a, a first one that comes to mind for me is critical race theory. Yeah, that's a good uh, one. It's it's those kinds of things, these these odd moments where they're not even about the thing. Because if you sit and you talk with people, you go, hey, so what exactly is it? Not only can they not say, because it's not they're not actually concerned really with what kids are being taught. They're concerned of the idea of the thing. The the delirium and the nature of it is is kind of plays towards that. Um 
It's a, it's a really good way to put it, Turn. Thank you. I like that. It's a fun, it's a fun, con- it, again, it comes down to, um, and they talk about this, they even have a, a big piece they did called uh, Capitalism, a Very Special Delirium. There's, there's natures around us and deliriums around us that we're all taking part in. Uh, the idea that there are laws is one. Uh, there aren't. There's is silliness. There's silliness there. Um, but as some that we just kind of accept, it's the, the nature of sort of social axiomatics is that there's this delirium that comes with them that we just believe in the law or we believe in these things. Um, I really like the way you put it, though, Tiernan. That's nice. I'm going to probably clip that later. It's a good one. Joseph Gable. Presenting a case of a paranoiac delirium with a strong politoerotic content replete with suggestions for social reform believes it possible to say that such a case is rare and that, moreover, its origins are not reconstructable. Yet, it is evident that there is never a delirium that does not possess this characteristic to a high degree, that it is that and that is not originally economic, political, and so forth, before being crushed in the psychiatric and psychoanalytic treadmill. Judge Schreiber would not deny this, nor his father, who invented the Pangmasticon and a general pedagogical system. Uh, Google that. Have fun. That's the worst thing to have in your search history. Everything changes, then. The infinite regression forced us to postulate a primacy of the father, but an always relative and hypothetical primacy that carried us to infinity, barring a shift into the position of an absolutely primary father. But it is clear that the viewpoint of regression is the result of abstraction. When we say the father is first in relation to the child, this proposition, devoid of meaning in itself, concretely means the following. The social investments are first in relation to the familial investments, which results solely from the application or the reduction of the social investments. To say that the father is first in relation to the child really amounts to saying that the investment of desire is, in the first instance, the investment of a social field into which the father and the child are plunged, simultaneously immersed. Fucking really clear last bit of lines. Um, Judge Schreber's father was a horrifying human being. Um, If you want to Google what not to do to your children, he's great uh, at that. Uh, He built machines, uh, machine straps that kept him like upright in very specific orders. It's awful. Like it's, and they have, it was gross. It's gross. Dude's gross. Um, uh, But the, the point is, that Judge Trevor would not deny his father was a pile of shit, but also that his father was originally sort of set up and then crushed into this psychoanalytic theory of here's how we need to form people, here's how we need to build it. Very much Judge Trevor actually kind of talked about this uh, in inside of the, the, the pieces you're able to read on it. The thing is, we need to step back and we need to go, wait, we have the father and the child who are immersed simultaneously into the social field around them, the, where they happen to live, what the culture is around them, what the political stances are, the race, all of these things. It's not so much that the father visits them on the child or the child visits wherever he sits on the father, but that they simultaneously are placed in, into the social field. And this investment happens pretty much imminently and constantly. That's how I read the paragraph. Uh, please, I'm open up for questions or commentary. Okay. Well, that's excellent. <laughs> um, 
it's a it's a fairly crisp paragraph um i think so um, i'm going to assume there's no major questions or comments and we can keep going hey, take your time i'm happy to let you think uh tiernan um the thing i do like is they open with gable and his his story of the one patient who isn't it strange he has this idea of how we might change things that's so silly no one is like this and their argument is actually they all are you just aren't seeing it because the first thing you do is you crush it into the triangulation of mommy daddy me and again fold the tablecloth as they refer to it a few times that's the nature of the couch and the psychoanalytic uh condition uh that last line, though, to say that the father is first in relation to a child really amounts to saying that the investment of desire is in the first instance the investment of a social field into which the father and child are plunged, simultaneously immersed. I will continue. Let us again consider the examples of the Marquesans as analyzed by Cardner. He distinguishes between an adult alimentary anxiety linked to an endemic famine and an infantile alimentary anxiety linked to a deficiency of maternal care. Not only is it impossible to derive the first anxiety from the second, but one cannot even consider, as Gardner does, that the social investment corresponding to the first anxiety comes after the infantile familial investment of the second. For a determination of the social field is already invested in the second type of anxiety, namely, the rarity of women that explains how it is that adults, no less than children, are wary of them. In brief, what the child invests through the infantile experience, the mother's breast and the family structure is already a state of the breaks and the flows of the social field in its entirety. Flows of women and of food, recordings and distributions. Never is the adult an afterward of the child, but in the family, both relate to the determinations of the field in which the family and they are simultaneously immersed. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really like about it is uh, so this line, not only is it impossible to derive the first anxiety from the second, but one cannot even consider, as Cardurner does, that the social investment corresponding to the first anxiety comes after the infantile familial investment of the second. For determination of the social field is already invested in the second type of anxiety, namely the rarity of women that explains how it is that adults, no less than children, are, quote, wary of them. Uh, sorry, the thing I like about that is that, um, you know, it's a nice case in point where we were just talking about that with the social investment, there is also going to be this kind of secondary familial investment, right? But um, when we're dealing with people in relation to each other, it's not as though, uh, and this is the chicken or the egg thing again, it's not as though one father passes it on to one child, passes it on to the, you know, their child passes on to their child, right? That in all these different cases, these people are have already been invested uh, with through desire, right? This production of the real um, is already taking place so as to produce them. And in that manner then, you're going to find these different investments playing out in these people, right? Not in such a way that it's a projection per se, but in such a way that um, this is how they've been produced, right? Not as necessarily father or son, but through these different um, through these different connections of desires, distributions of them, and subjectivities that they ultimately consummate. Now, 
that they are ultimately consummated by. Uh, quick question, maybe naive, but the first anxiety and second anxiety, that's just like, uh, like the event that happened in a, someone's childhood that like follows them or whatever. So this one, this one's unique. Uh, this, the Marquesans aren't, uh, like a family. It's not Mr. and Mrs. Marquesan. Uh, it's the Marquesan people, uh, that, uh, they were actually going in and, and having this sort of writing and reading about and discussing, uh, uh, specifically here, you know, God, this has been a while since I've read, so I apologize if I'm getting any of this wrong, I'm trying to go top level. Um, the, the way that they had their sort of society set up is there was overall a lack of women because everyone, there was a whole bunch of reasons for this, but uh, children kind of grew up without uh, consistent food as a thing. Uh, and later on, when there were famines, people generally were very, had insane anxiety about a possibility of a famine. As Cardner, as, as he does uh, here, they say the, the first anxiety somehow comes uh, after. So the, the fear of the anxiety of famine comes after the infantile investment of the second. To them, to them, the way that they're saying in brief what the child invests through the infantile experience the mother's breast the familial structure is already a state of breaks and flows of the social field in its entirety there really isn't even a second almost that they're saying here never is the adult an afterward of the child but in family both relate to the determinations of the field in which both the family and they are simultaneously immersed the nature of having a lack of women is a famine in and of itself these are the same thing there is a political determination it's not just my lack as a child of having mother around or being fed, but instead the larger social realities that everyone is sort of uh, subsumed through, it's happening to the child and the parent. It's not that there's a second anxiety, is, is how I read this. Uh, but it's a tough paragraph to kind of break that down. I'd love to have if anyone else uh, sets that up. So, yeah, the, the Marquesan thing was fascinating because it was... The reason there weren't a lot of women is war had happened. And that's when Cardiner came in. And so the lack of women and the problems that were happening later than visited as a fear of famine, he sighs, oh, they didn't have that. It's like, no, no, we're talking about a larger political and social political reality. It's not just that the baby didn't have food. And then that sort of registered as, oh, no, no food. But that there is, as a family and as a, as a group, the people who are taking care the lack of women was due to a fucking war. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. God, I goddamn, I need to Google this before I say anything more. Give me a minute. Uh, if someone wants to talk, I should Google that before I say anything more. So he's saying that uh, there is this. Um, there was this anxiety linked to the uh, linked to the uh, famine, endemic famine, but it's in a context of uh, of a of an anxiety uh, of a social anxiety that was. Uh, that was already um, established, right? The, the desire, and for again, for even everyone, does, the first place desire invests itself is the social, is the social. That's where we're at. Right. And so there we go. Thank you very much, Jean Claire. Jesus. Um, the, so if, if that's the case, the idea of breaking down is, oh, it's mother breast, and that's, that's it's, no, there's a, there's a social stratum that actually is sort of visited on everyone simultaneously it's not just that oh the father has a more developed this but it's because when he was younger he had this it's like everything kind of visits us uh, as part of this social investment this larger social field 
that plays through all of these things. Because it's the point they make here. I think they're saying it straight because it's hard to tell when they're being sarcastic sometimes. For a determination of the social field is already invested in the second type of anxiety, namely the rarity of women that explains how it is that the adults, no less than the children, are wary of them, which is this very specific line that Cardiner sort of attached to. But again, the issue is, as they say, they don't have food and they have an endemic famine that's consistent. And there's this like issue that babies aren't getting enough food. This infantile elementary anxiety linked to a deficiency of maternal care. Boy, that's said overly complicated. Uh, they have ongoing hunger, and then also the infants aren't getting enough food because just in general, there aren't enough women. Everyone's trying to do stuff. War has happened. Illness has happened. They're having a lot of death. So socially, um, it's uh, all being visited at once. Um, uh, Logan on our YouTube says, I can't tell if Delusian's Googling is tenderly ironic or it's right on brand. Also unable to figure out whether or not tender irony is quintessentially Delusian or Guattarian. I don't even know what that means. Uh, we're Googling to uh, understand what references are. That's uh, what we do. Um, Jean-Claire says, it's like collective generational trauma passed down. It's and, and experienced eminently by parent and child. Uh, as a social investment, I think is what this is talking about here. Uh, familial yeah. structures already in a state of breaks and flows of the social field in its entirety, flows of women and of food, recordings, distributions. Never is the adult an afterward, but the family both relate to determinations as they are simultaneously immersed. Yeah, I, I think you got it there, right? It's not, I don't think it's the passing down of that. It's that in, in the social context, right? The way mm -hmm. that, um, everything's being produced, right? There aren't, um, you know, the idea of weaning on that isn't a scarcity too. And there's a repetition that comes with that, right? Uh, so it's not so much like this is something that the child is going to carry going forward, that they had a problem with their mother growing up or uh, what have you. Um, it's that these acts of feeding on that, right? Existing through a social investment such that the child would be doing these weaning acts. That's right. Oops, mm -hmm. you still hear me? Yep, sorry about that. Yeah. Didn't move my mouse for a while. Um, so in, in the repetition of those acts, right, there's a recording that happens and a distribution, and there are subjectivities produced through that, right? And that is what, um, that's what we're seeing here is that, that ontology of it as opposed to, um, you know, the passing down of a generational issue with uh, women, right? Yes. Well, and again, I think all of this is ultimately coming back to the same thing that it started with, that they've been talking about in the irony they brought up early in chapter two and mentioned in one, which is the idea that uh, it starts with the child, which is very much what Oedipus uh, is about as a complex, that it requires all three. This is the comment of the chicken and the egg. The, the idea that it starts with the child is, is silly, but here's how they're explaining it and here's how they're kind of getting through that. Um, kind of like the every child is an orphan kind of thing, I say. Yes. It, it, it puts us in a different spot where it's, I mean, we'll get into it in the next one, but it's, it's understanding that, again, our investments come through the social, our investments come through these other things. 
first rather than, oh, it's, it's this determinant thing of how the family interrelates to itself. Maybe there's other stuff outside of the family, uh, perhaps, <laughs> like an entire fucking world that's continually putting pressure on it and placing us in different, you know, anxieties and stratum. Just a crazy idea that there's a whole world outside of the family. Uh, Logan is asking an excellent question. I'll, I'll stick around to the end. We'll bring it up. We're going to try to get through some more text. Um, I'm going to continue the next paragraph and we'll continue through though. Hence, we are confronted by three unavoidable conclusions. One, from the point of view of regression, whose meaning is only hypothetical, it is the father who is first in relation to the child. The paranoiac father oedipalizes the son. Guilt is an idea projected by the father before it is an inner feeling experienced by the son. The first error of psychoanalysis is in acting as if things began with the child. This leads psychoanalysis to develop an absurd theory of fantasy, in terms of which the father, the mother, and their real actions and passions must first be understood as fantasies of the child, the Freudian abandonment of the theme of seduction. Two, if regression taken in an absolute sense reveals itself to be inadequate, it is because this regression encloses us in simple reproduction or generation. Furthermore, taking organic bodies and organized persons as its object, the theory of regression merely attains the object of reproduction. The point of view of the cycle alone is categorical and absolute because it attains production as the subject of reproduction, which is to say it attains the process of autoproduction of the unconscious, a unity of history and of nature from homo natura to homo historia. It is certainly not sexuality that is in the service of generation, but progressive or regressive generation that is in the service of sexuality as a cyclical movement by which the unconscious, always remaining a subject, reproduces itself. There is then no longer any call for wondering which is first, the father or the child, because such a question can be raised only within the framework of familialism. The father is first in relation to the child, but only because what is first is the social investment in relation to the familial investment. The investment of the social field in which the father, the child, and the family as a sub-aggregate are at one and the same time immersed. The primacy of the social field as the terminus of the investment of desire defines the cycle and the states through which a subject passes. The second arrow psychoanalysis, made just as it was completing the separation of sexuality from reproduction, lies in having remained captive to an unrepentant familialism that condemned it to evolve solely within the movement of regression or progression. Even the psychoanalytic conception of repetition remains captive to such a movement. Let's take the conclusions and break them out. Uh, there's two so far, we haven't gotten to the third. Uh, the first element that is important that we need to deal with is the fact that it is the father that comes first to the child. The father oedipalizes the son. I think that makes more sense <laughs> than, than having a, a baby do things to a parent. Sure, but they, they, they outline sort of why. Uh, we need to forget that things begin with the child. We need to instead change how fantasy is built and change the terms of which those things matter 
their real actions and passions must first be understood as fantasies of the child. No, we're, we're tossing that aside. The, the parents are the parents. This is the second. If regression taken in an absolute sense reveals itself to be inadequate, it's because this regression encloses us in the reproduction or generation. This is because, and to say it short here, um, it requires the family. The family starts here. This is the thing, the point of view attains production as a subject of reproduction. It attains the process of auto-production of the unconscious. This is because this is the family first. The father is first, but only because what is first is the social relation in relation to the familial investment. Um, what, how do you tell a child to be successful? Well, the, the father has to, the mother, sure, a parent. The parent has to do that. Now, why do they say certain things or how do they do that? Oh, the social field. Uh, this is the thing I think that makes more sense to all of us. It's not that a parent divines on their own what success of a child <laughs> looks like or the right college to go to or the right elementary school or how to stand or how to talk or how to say please and thank you. These are things that are not the child visiting that upon the parent or why to say these things. It's This is the society at large and the social field as a investment of the parents being visited on by the whole family imminently at once. This is, this is the grouping of it. Um, yeah, uh, Jan Claire, I'm gonna make sure we star that because that's just a great pulling out. Any questions, any comments here? Um, I know it's a little bit much uh, to sort of read through. The third bit, which is what Jack has been getting at, which is the disjunctive, is coming up in the next paragraph. But these are essentially the two things. So first understanding that, no, it's the father that comes first, but the reason that the father comes first is it's because of the social field that is impinging upon the family uh, as a whole, and that the family is a form of the setup. I mean, they're, they're already getting at it with this idea, uh, with the point that guilt is an idea projected by the father before it is the inner feeling experienced by the son, right? Um, I think I think part of what you can draw from that, or at least what I draw from that, um, it goes all the way back to the first socius, right? The use of guilt in the theater of cruelty, um, the use of guilt in the the distribution, the, the distributive synthesis, right? The affiliative and the alliant, and the use of debt, or particularly then you know the debit system as opposed to crediting, uh, in the second socius. So I think you're getting that carry on. Um, right here as well. And uh, like you're saying with the second, you know, the one of the things that I attach to there is, it's funny, you could almost contrast this with the, like the eternal return and that, but um, one of the things that I take out of this point about the cycle there is, right, uh, and this is something I think we can, we've seen a lot of the ways we think about things, right? We take a process and we take it in terms of a something regressive or progressive, right? And it doesn't really, it appears to us as though it's self-produced, right? Um, and that's kind of the thing that we're, we're circumventing here is that uh, instead of seeing the process in its self-production, which would be the unconscious, right? I think what they're getting at is um, we're basically taking the organization of something, we're taking something that's appeared to us, and we're making that uh, the explanative means for what came before or what comes after, right? That we're going to keep finding it in this configuration as a, and we're not able to really explain 
how it's been produced, right? We're going to keep finding the father and the son, but we can't really, you know, we can talk about how it passes on generations, and we can talk about how it precedes generations, but that doesn't really get at um, the production of that, right? What made all of that possible? How did it happen? You know, instead, we're just going to go backtrack or forward track and basically repeat ourselves. But that's not, uh, that's not auto-production. That's not the unconscious. But it's the, the auto production of the unconscious is is absolutely a key phrasing there. A uh, unity of history and from Homo natura to Homo historia is a it's a great like sexuality. Uh, any question? The surface of generation, right? Uh, generation and regeneration uh, are in the service of sexuality. I think that really does say it right. That desire doesn't desire isn't. Um, coagulated through the uh, like through a generative process through the father-son problem and that it is to say that anything that would be produced is through desire right so it's again it's kind of like it's um it's just like the familial not being the determinant of the social it's kind mm -hmm. of the similar move all right I'll let jan claire type and then i'll continue to the third unavoidable conclusion which is, uh, I think, the one that is uh, more important. The, these are a little easier. It's, a, it's a, I think, a little bit more, I almost want to say commonsensical, which is not a thing you can often say in Deleuze's work. Um, but we'll see. Uh, oh, see, Jean-Claire's just grabbing them, them good bits from the book and posting them. Love that shit. Uh, the part that Jack was just talking about. Love it. All right, to continue to the third. Finally, the point of view of the community, which is disjunctive or takes account of the disjunctions in the cycle. Not only is generation second in relation to the cycle, but transmission is second in relation to an information or a communication. A genetic revolution occurred when it was discovered that, strictly speaking, there is no transmission of flows, but a communication of a code or an axiomatic of a combinative apparatus informing the flows. Such is also the case for the social field. Its coding or its axiomatic first determine within it a communication of unconsciouses. This phenomenon of communication, which Freud touched on only marginally in his remarks on occultism, constitutes in fact the norm and pushes into the background the problems of hereditary transmission that animated the Freud-Jung controversy. It appears that in the common social field, the first thing that the son represses, or has to repress, or tries to repress, is the unconscious of the father and the mother. The failure of that repression is the basis of neuroses. But this communication of unconsciouses does not by any means take the family as its principle. It takes as its principle the commonality of the social field insofar as it is the object of an investment of desire. In all respects, the family is never determining, but is always determined, first as a stimulus of departure, then as an aggregate of destination, and finally as an intermediary or an interception of communication. The first thing a child needs to repress is his parents' unconsciouses, uh, which I, I really like that line, and I think um, I personally, it, it grocks me real quick. Uh, it flows. I, I, I get it. What it, as a parent, uh, it 
very clear as a thing that is something you experience and get to watch your kid go through. Um, I have my, my, as I, my wife and I, we, we have, we all have our own bullshit. My wife and I laugh about it. Everyone's got their thing. None of us are like perfectly healthy, little wonderful creatures. And you do your best to not bring those things or visit them upon your kid, but they're going to, my parents visited last week. Um, those things have, there's stories there, there's backgrounds there. There's all kinds of things that his first job is to actually do his best to try to remove what remains of mom and dad as he grows up and he starts to sort of form his own subjectivity. Failure of repression of that is the basis for neuroses. But this communication of unconsciousness from parent to child does not take the family as its principle. It doesn't give a shit about family. It takes as its principle the commonality of the social field insofar as it is the object of investment of desire. My, my son goes with us when we go shopping at Safeway or when I go to Costco or when I'm walking around the lake or when I'm going to go fishing or when my wife goes out to go to the tailor to get something fixed. It's the, the nature of these things. He's with us when that happens. It doesn't take the family as its principle, but instead our relation as almost a single unit to society. The family is not determining of the social field, but determined by it, first as the stimulus of departure, then as the aggregate of its destination, which is a crazy sentence. I almost want to break down this last line itself. But ultimately, as an intermediary or an interception of this communication. That's a wild set of sentences that has some pretty far-reaching implications. I'll, I'll leave it open. I just really loved and personally attached to that. I know you guys love hearing about me talk about being a parent and how fucking weird it is. Is anybody... Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Can anybody elaborate on that uh, Freud and Jung controversy that sounds like related to the, uh, the footnote here with uh, Spinoza's unconscious posed by Spinoza and then related to Myers, James, Bolling, and Bergson. Um, I think it has to do with the, oh, God damn it. It's been a long time since we looked this up and we don't have Ken here, which I kind of feel like I don't want to super get into it without our Jungian friend. Um, I think it has to do with archetypes and how they're handled. If I remember right the last time around, I don't think we need to nail Ken that many times. He's not going to join us. It's okay. Um, but I, I think it has to do with the archetypes and how they move. It's the, the line here, the phenomenon of communication, which Freud touched into only marginally in his remarks on occultism, constitutes, in fact, the norm. The, the lines he's got before here that he's talking about are that it's not simply that there is no transmission of flows, uh, the desire moving between, which is... A little bit of that early Freud, uh, desire itself, libidinal energy transferring. It's actually no. What happens is the communication of code or axiomatics, the, the codification of desire that moves and transmits and informs the flows as they move. This is the thing Freud touched on that animated the controversy underneath all of it, that it's about the communication of codes rather than just the transference of flows. And... This communication of codes as such, as we've talked about it, again, to go back to chapter three, almost in its entirety, but for sure the last two to three sections of that, the nature of 
capital as we get it is that we don't have a transfer of flows the same way we did in the primitive or hell, even the despotic, that everything becomes deeply codified and axiomatized and that those axiomatics exist at a social level. They are the things that determine and create the rules rather than our imminent desires, which are flows. This is the shift that we're talking about. And so this communication that is happening within the family is also codified, also apl applicable only within capitalism as we talk about it. Again, one of their major critiques of, you know, of Freud is that he uh, presumed that the world he lived in, this hyper-bougie late 1800s world in Europe, was the determinant factor, when in reality the family, as he was seeing it, was this thing that was being formed by the growth of capitalism as a socius, as the social order at large. Uh, that's how I th I'm reading this and how I've read this before. I'm open if anyone else wants to dive in. Um, but it's specifically, I think it has to do with flows versus code for how these desires shift within people and how, how those codes work. I think it has to do with archetypes. I think that's the thing that they were getting at, the occult reference being my clue there, but someone else knows Freud way better than me. You're a young Ian. See, young Claire, it's great. Uh, you, and, you and Ken, we need you people. Uh, young Claire, young disagreed with the Freudian idea of the libido and the incest Oedipus triad. Uh, Jung felt there was more to the unconscious than daddy, mommy, me, which you know, I think that flows that they agree, they agree with it as well. Um, um, but it's the line pushes into the background the problems of hereditary transmission. How do we transmit information to our children? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the question that they're trying to answer here. How do I teach my son about the world? Well, it's not just literally the words that I say to him. There's a codification of general behavior and, and everything. But it's not just that I'm passing on my desires to him, which is to go a little bit back into Freud, not wildly off from some of the shit that I've read that he wrote and some of his, uh, his minions also wrote in return. I think. I, I just need to add that. I, it should be assumed that every time I finish talking, that's what I intend to finish with is, I think, meh, I think, yeah. Well, in this case, uh, Deleuze is uh, a critical of Freud's, um, you know, um, particularly the Oedipal complex, and uh, where he's, he might um, more, uh, be more agreeable with uh, Jung's idea of the archetypes uh, the, that resides in the unconscious and is not so easily, the, um, you know, uh, co-opted um, into the uh, into the capitalist uh, socius, right? I would I would put it to Jean Claire to answer that for me. Um, but he, they quote, Jung once said, "The greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of its parents," which is a f one a fucking great line. But two, sounds like what we're getting at here. Um, the the first thing a child must do is repress its parents' unconsciouses, uh, the unlived life of its parents. I mean, to me, this sounds like we're driving at much of the same thing, but I'm sure there's a million things in Jung that whatever, I'm totally going off the reservation with. But I, I think generally um, they would sign that direction, yeah. Well, it's the last yeah. line here. Sorry, go ahead, Jack. And I don't have... My understanding between the Freud and Jung is there's a whole slew of disagreements, right? Um, and Oedipus is certainly one of them. But if we go back to the, the, you know, the topic of the paragraph, right? Not only is generation second in relation to the cycle, 
a transmission, the second in relation to an information or a communication, right? Um, so the transmission, I think, being the key word here if we're talking about disjunctive synthesis. The use of memory and the functionality that, that machines are going to be doing, right, to produce that surplus value. I think that's the stakes here. Um, but it's not a transmission of flows per se, it's a communication of a code or an axiomatic, depending on the socius, of a combinative apparatus informing the flows, right? So the combinative apparatus and I, right, I mean, we're, we're basically talking about the first synthesis here and the use of the socius. If I read this into the Freud-Jung controversy, it sounds to me like, yeah, on one hand, it's probably got something to do with Oedipus. But on the other hand, it's a question of how do the unconsciouses communicate, right? Especially in psychoanalysis, where, um, you know, it is kind of like, and they start, they, they start out with this problem, right? It's either the person's unconscious or like a collective unconscious in like a social sense, right? You kind of have this either or problem between the two, just like you would have the, uh, the either or problem of, well, is it natural or is it social, right? Um, and I think the move they're making here is to say that, and I'm not sure exactly what Jung's idea is here, because I, from what I've read, you know, he's got the whole, he is going to go into culture into a little bit different way than, than Freud is. But I think the main thing being here that for the unconscious is to communicate, right, or more directly for the father and mother to have the to have an unconscious production. That unconscious production at a social level, right, through the socius, particularly in capital, is working through the axiomatics, the way that figures uh, and the, the expressions thereby uh, work with codes, both supplanting them and disseminating information. That this is the way that uh, communication is happening in the unconscious um, and going to be actually affecting the production, right? Affecting what things do, as opposed to just like a a generational passing on of things, right? That uh, it came from my father and his father and it'll go to my son. Um, or I guess with Young, it's a little bit difficult to put my finger on that one. But I think that's the big move that, that they're saying. Freud kind of understands this, right? He knows that the unconsciouses um, have a communication process, right? that's so marginal because it's going to be in service of this um, this passing on of the cycle, right? That uh, the use of memory is just this, this, this ongoing progenation of regeneration and progression. It's simply, right? It's not that the family is the determining thing, it's that the family is determined, right? So the way that the unconsciouses communicate isn't necessarily by reference of the familial, it is to say that their communicative process is actually going to be what invests the familial. Oh, a lot there. Um, I'm going to move on to the next paragraph because there's a lot to discuss in this next one for sure. If the familial investment is only a dependence or an application of the unconscious investments of the social field, and if this is just as true of the child as of the adult, if it is true that the child, through the mommy territoriality and the daddy law, already aims for the skizzes and the encoded or axiomatic flows of the social field, 
then we must transport the essential difference to the heart of this domain. Delirium is the general matrix of every unconscious social investment. Every unconscious investment mobilizes a delirious interplay of disinvestments, of counterinvestments, of overinvestments. But we have seen in this context that there were two major types of social investment, segregative and nomadic, just as there were two poles of delirium. First, a paranoiac fascizing type or pole that invests the formation of central sovereignty, overinvests it by making it the final eternal cause for all the other social forms of history, counterinvests the enclaves or the periphery, and disinvests every free figure of desire. Yes, I am your kind, and I belong to the superior race and class. And second, a schizo-revolutionary type or pole that follows lines of escape of desire, breaches the wall and causes flows to move, assembles its machines and its groups infusion in the enclaves or at the periphery, proceeding in an inverse fashion from that of the other pole. I am not your kind. I belong eternally to the inferior race. I am a beast, a black. Good people say that we must not flee, that to escape is not good, that it isn't effective, that one must work for the reforms. But the revolutionary knows that escape is revolutionary. Withdrawal freaks, provided one sweeps away the social cover on leaving or causes a piece of the system to get lost in the shuffle. What matters is to break through the wall, even if one has to become black like John Brown. George Jackson, I may take flight, but all the while I am fleeing, I will be looking for a weapon. Hell of a statement. One thing I always loved about that reference is, at least in my edition, if you go all the way back to the notes for introduction to schizoanalysis to see where where this uh, occurs, it's it's absolutely blank. There's just five in an empty space. So it's a hell of a line, but <laughs> good luck finding it. Well, we'll start from the first and just make our way through because this is this is a worthwhile paragraph. If the familial investment is only a dependence or an application of the unconscious investments of the social field, if this is just as true for child as adult, if it is true that the child, blah, blah, then we must transport the essential difference to the heart of this domain. This nature of these things, the dependence or application of the unconscious investments, all of these elements, if it is true that the child, through these things, aims for the schizes and encoded or axiomatic flows of the social field, that the child's doing this from birth, from first experience, we need to go to the heart of the domain and have a question around exactly how these deliriums operate. And this is the point. Delirium is the general matrix. It is the, the, the field of every unconscious social investment. It is the way it's laid out, how we, how we place it, how we put it in relation to other items. Each of these investments mobilizes a delirious interplay of disinvestments, counterinvestments, or overinvestments. The, nature of how we play into these may, may vary how we play into these social investments but it ultimately is an interplay of either disinvesting counter or over investing the thing is through this we can do one of two things either we can fascize through the paranoiac side of things we can fight for the central sovereignty the demand that things are what they are making it a final eternal cause for all other social forms um, 
This is the core thing they drive towards what fascism is. Opposing that, we can take lines of escape of desire, follow the desires, go through the walls, break them down, do what we do, sit where we sit, be where we are, assemble the machines and group fusions in the enclaves at the periphery, uh, proceed inversely from the other pole, find where that central sovereignty is and run the other direction through the walls like the Kool-Aid man if we have to. And be very, cl very clear, I am not your kind. I belong to the inferior race. I am less. I am nothing. I am not part of your world. Demand the other direction. Uh, this is the schizo, the revolutionary direction. Uh, and then the next set of lines is, uh, we'll get to in a second. And, and any issues with my analysis or reading there on those parts? Any thoughts before we move to this last little bit, which is a hell of a statement in itself. Uh, before, were you making a connection between the delirium and the phantasm? I, I probably shouldn't because I don't have any idea if that's the case, but it feels as we get through this, how the phantasm operates by bringing together in logic of sense, uh, sorry to jump back for those who aren't part of our logic of sense reading. Logic of sense, you go through uh, a lot of work with Deleuze to talk about series of singularities, how we find meaning within how sense is made of any grouping of things, the series of items. The, the phantasm sits between series as a resonance between them. There isn't actually a direct connection between them, but we're able to almost manufacture one as we consider it, as we think of it, the phantasm emerges as a resonance between them. This feels to me that these deliriums have the same general application. They are through a series of social realities or coordinates on the social spectrum. And in between them, we're able to say things like, oh, this is the proper race, the master race, for example, or I am not that. How we're counter-investing or counter-actualizing, you might say, plays into this. It feels like there's a lot of uh, crossover in how they play. That it, not necessarily am I saying that's the case. It just feels like there's some, at least... Uh, Perhaps I'm creating a phantasm between these series of the phantasm and delirium, but uh, it does feel like there's a similarity in how they operate and how they come to form. Right. It seems like it has a lot to do with the, uh, the individual's relationship with uh, the father, right? Um, with, the, yeah. with the parents in general, with, with everything. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's a complex, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, and it's all those series and all those elements. When, he's, when they're talking here about... The, the two poles, and they have these things where they talk about, I am the superior race, I am the superior class. We're talking about there a series that has, de that has denotations and significations and manifestations that play into a very specific direction. In this case, yes, Jean-Claire, it's about authority. It's about the central sovereignty, this final eternal cause, the paranoiac reaction to knowledge, to things. The other direction is the schizo-revolutionary, the counter-actualization. To me, it's a counter-actualization. It's, it's charging the other direction as much as possible, saying things, I am not your kind, which is on its face, uh, saying that to someone is weird as shit. Like it's, it is, it's just one of those things saying, I am a, I am a black. Uh, I've seen, I won't say the N word during the, the George Floyd protests, there was a group of proud boys, this white guy on the side of the, this group of black guys 
And he started screaming, I am an N word. And he was yelling it at the proud boys and they didn't know what to fucking do. It was this really strange moment. And I didn't know if it was offensive or whatever, but it was just really odd because he was moving in that direction of demanding that he, you treat him as such. I am as such do what you do to me. And it's just this really strange mentality. The other direction, again, opposing that central sovereignty, opposing this final eternal cause and final form of social history um, that, that, that sort of plays in a completely different place. I found it, it's an interesting visual for me, at least. I, I blew me away. Maybe this is a question that he will get into later, but um, when they talk about escape in, in this context, um, what do they escape to? Oh no, that that's I I would say that the problem is asking that question. Lines of escape okay. are literally just escape. But Jack, feel free. Uh well yeah. Um Oh gosh, I looked away. Um I'm like Lot looking back, or Lot's wife looking back. Uh yeah, the thing I was gonna say to your example there, Brooks, is that might actually help you help answer that question, right? Because um, the point about delirium is that you have the, the, like when they're talking about matrix, right? You have the whole bundle of counter investments and well, let's just put it in easier terms of breakdowns and breakthroughs like we saw in capital, right? There's the problem of the displacement of the limit and then the breaking of the limit, right? Which would be that schizophrenic, um, and this is what they're talking about with the wall, right? The schizophrenic aspect coming into play and breaking that all down. I'm sorry, breaking through all that as opposed to just having a breakdown and the this problem of the of the displacement uh, that, that it keeps perpetuating. With his with your example, Brutz, I think what you see is an example of what they're talking about because by doing that, right, it's not an escape in the sense of the guy just like walked away and you know left the fight. Not that there's never value in that, but it's escape in the sense that the the use of codes there and, and, and the way that desire is being configured for the Proud Boys in that sense, right? The subjectivity of whiteness in that, but also the identification of a of an exclusivity, right? You either are or are not, right? In a sense, an us-them mentality, right? An exclusive disjunction is completely supplanted there because now there's a there's an investment being made now because with the unconscious, whenever there's an investment made, it's reflexive. As the investment is being made, it's also recorded and right affects the way that future investments will be made. That's like the 1.2 and all of that, right? So by doing that, what that fellow is actually doing is um, it's more or less forcing a reconfiguration, right? Breaking through a certain wall of, um, uh, not just codes, but actually axiomatics, right, um, of subjectivities and causing a reconfiguration. Now, you don't get that purity, though, because that's like when we were talking about Wall Street bets, right? Maybe there was something revolutionary in what, in what happened with the way that all of a sudden we saw hedge fund managers pleading that they, they couldn't afford these these giant bills and that they had been swindled and robbed and this was unjust and all of that bushwa. Um, 
and you know the whole meme stock thing but now that all plays into it right so you know you and that's the matrix that it just these events keep happening and the investments stay with them so that the escape is to go the escape is um is matricized in that manner right it's a line that uh allows for this new flow to take place like the pipe bursting right it's it's sort of more or less that kind of escape as opposed to like just running away in, well, in like they, a more traditional sense they phrase it very specifically at the end there that i love is um the line what matters is to break through the wall that's a to the question asked by misha uh, where are you escaping to that's not the point the point is to break through the wall the line they have even if one has to become black like John Brown. And that's a phenomenal statement. Uh, John Brown's body is a moldering in the ground, a great hero of the Civil War. Well, great, great uh, abolitionist hero. Uh, John Brown was not black um, by, any, by any measurement of his skin. Uh, he was a religious fervor, uh, killed a whole bunch of slave owners. Good dude. Um, but the line is that we have to maybe become black like John Brown to uh, take on these elements that, again, no one is any race. That's silliness. Um, we, But these things have secondary social investments, overinvestments, disinvestments, and counterinvestments to Tiernan's questions. So if you want to talk about what overinvestment is, it's, oh, I'm going to overinvest in race and its importance. I'm, I am part of the master race. I am white. It's wonderful. God damn it. I'm going to get clipped. Um, counterinvesting. Oh no, I'm black. Uh, I'm black. I'm, I'm not like you. I'm eternally inferior. Uh, and then uh, a disinvestment is simply the disinvesting, not getting involved. Um, which tends to be a play, you could argue, for some level of investment. But uh, that's the, the push, is that within everything in the social field, we're always doing something that is one of those things. Like we're always investing, over-investing, counter-investing, disinvesting through everything. They go through it as their examples. Uh, the paranoiac fascizing type poll invests in the formation of central sovereignty first, it's a power station, overinvest by making this form the final eternal cause from all so other social forms of history. America is the greatest country that ever will exist. Um, it's not hard, by the way, as an American to come up with good examples of the garbage here. Uh, Counterinvest, the enclaves or the periphery, um, the, I mean, Jesus Christ, I don't want to give depressing examples, but, uh, find things at the peripheral of the power structure in white America, it's not hard to find where they counter-invest. Uh, black towns in Alabama that haven't had running water uh, or have an open-air sewage system. Uh, these are the things that they counter-invest as a setup. And they disinvest free figures of desire. The free figure of desire here that is completely just sort of left by the wayside. They're able to say things as such. They come out and say, I am your kind. I belong to the superior racing class. I, I'm part of you. Um, the incredibly poor Trump voter who has nothing in common with anyone who's wealthy, voting for tax breaks for billionaires, the Elon Musk fan. Uh, this is their investment and where it comes from and their fascizing 
uh, on that side of the pole and how their investments work. And so it's, it's that so-called breaking of the wall and alternative to any kind of investment or is it also an investment sorry that's why i'm where i'm a little bit confused you're still investing okay yeah it's it's just an inverse fashion from the other pole that's their point here it's a question of what everything isn't everything we deal with socially it, we're investing in something counter investing disinvesting what we are or our subjectivity or our relations socially are these different levels of investment in all kinds of things and deliriums socially the question is, what are you invested in? That's the question. And uh, not in terms of, oh, I really love this uh, liberal type. Oh, no, I back equality or shit like that. No, no. Where are you investing? What stories are you telling? What is your delirium that is being told through what your investments are? Uh, to them, they say the lines of escape would be proceeding in an inverse fashion. Um, breaches the wall, causes flows to move. It's very much in, over invests almost every free figure of desire. It's the opposing reality. I am not your kind. I belong to the specifically, I belong eternally to the inferior race. It's not, oh, today I'm, 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 I'm black because whatever it's, I'm eternally the inferior race because I refuse to be part of that power structure. It's counter investing in that central, uh, sovereignty in that authority very specific use uh, words they have around all of this. I'm not sure I'm a cool fan of how they phrase I am a beast, a black, but I think they're making some points uh, in reference to a few other texts there. It's just awkwardness. Yeah, it's from Bo. What? Yeah, it's from Rimbaud. Oh. It's a, a French poet, Arthur Rimbaud. Oh, that would make sense then. Because that's isn't yeah, Rimbaud also who Rimbaud who is yeah they should put, fuck they should put in quotes. Um, Rimbaud is actually who they reference in capitalism a special uh, type of delirium a very special delirium. Uh, Rimbaud is who they actually reference pretty directly a couple times. Does that makes sense. Yeah, I mean he's and it kind of goes back to your example, right? He's. I mean, we can talk about poetry and all that, but at a, just a basic level, he's he's basically forcing the audience in a sense to to reconsider things on a whole different set of terms right and he's able to kind of provide those terms uh you know in, in a sense like the kind of counter investing in that that they're talking about right it it is this kind of schizophrenic thing in that but it's you know like this aspect of i'm a beast i'm a black right there's a way in which certain things are affirmed and in a sense, like the negative is is basically inverted too, right? Because the, like in your example of Alabama and that, something like a black town and that, I mean, it's still there, right? But it can be defined in terms of what it's not, which is the white town. Um, but there's a way in which through an affirmative process, I think what they're getting at is um, the affirmation of something like blackness and that quality it's not to simply identify as being black on that, right? This gets into a problem of uh, particularly over-investing, right? Just like over-coding, where now you're just kind of putting blocks of, um, uh, of signifieds on top of each other. Uh, what, what you instead get is something like that functionality being redistributed um, in a manner unlike 
the exclusivity of it, right? Where instead of it just being um, an either or problem or not, you know, either white or black, in terms of the distribution, you end up getting um, that inclusive disjunction where a new subjectivity altogether is being produced, a new configuration is made possible through the through this particular schizophrenic use because the uh, the the wall has been broken through right desire is now flowing and connecting in different ways um, with and, and now on its own terms right but also with having uh, passed beyond that um, that absolute limit we were talking about that that is actually supplanted in a certain sense Uh, the last thing to mention is it's worth reading um, um, Deleuze's uh, letters. Um, he did a bit with uh, Claire Parnett. Um, but any time he mentions Lines of Flight and George Jackson, it's very specifically in reference to the uh, uh, black radical George Jackson, uh, who died in a prison riot uh, when he took hostages. And actually, he wrote some pretty uh, fantastic bits. Uh, there's a book called Letters of George Jackson. I think it's called Letters, Journals of? God damn it, what's it called? Something uh, from George Jackson that very much Deleuze uh, was very taken by. And it's pretty formative, especially to this, but also his future writings. It's worth looking at. Um, doubtless, there are astonishing oscillations of the unconscious from one pole of delirium to the other, the way in which an expected revolutionary force breaks free, sometimes even in the midst of the worst archaisms. Inversely, the way in which everything turns fascist or envelops itself in fascism, the way in which it falls back into archaisms. Uh, one second, my monitor just went out. All right. Um, or, staying on the level of literary examples, the case of Celine, the great victim of delirium, who evolves while communicating more and more with the paranoia of his father. The case of Jack Kerouac, the artist possessing the soberest of means who took revolutionary flight, but who later finds himself immersed in dreams of a great America. And then in search of his Breton ancestors of the superior race. Isn't the destiny of American literature that of crossing limits and frontiers? causing deterritorialized flows of desire to circulate, but also always making these flows transport fascizing, molarizing Puritan and familialist territorialities? Uh, the answer to that question is yes. Oh, man, for Walt Whitman, bro. <laughs> I mean, it's... Uh, Deleuze uh, was deeply taken with most American literature and poetry in a way that he wasn't with almost any other culture, but for sure, his example of Kerouac is spot on. Um, and it's a very consistent thing you tend to see in, in American writing, American lit, that there's an overtime that happens and there's a fascizing, a molarizing, a puritanal and familialist sort of recovery of whatever went beyond that, which is pretty powerful to say. It's, it's a great sentence. This is, again, um, getting at one of the things uh, that I really like this as a, um, a concept and a way to sort of talk through this. The idea that there is 
only one direction and that we're only ever, oh, the good person moves this direction or is always revolutionary or does this, or if a person makes a trans, there's oscillations of the unconscious, one pole of delirium to the other. And it's, uh, it's astonishing, his wording. It, it's amazing how you can slam from one way to the other. Um, they, earlier, they talk at length about the tragedy that was the Soviet Union and why it ultimately ended up in fascism. Um, it's not the only time that that's happened where far-left movements have ended up being as right, if not further right, than most any that have existed. Uh, people who have started out deeply, deeply left-wing have made their way slowly over to other placements. The, the oscillation uh, of the unconscious from one delirium to another is a really nice way of putting it. Um, oof. Well, it, it shows the matrix so nicely, right, that you have that you have the problem of the revolutionary and the reactionary, right? That you can't have like just a pure revolutionary path or just like you make a revolutionary investment, you're done, you know? The example I always like is that, and if Richard Wolff ever listens to this, I, I hope you I hope you direct all comments to um, the hot dates of G. Deleuze, any criticisms or vituperances, uh, uh, be sure to put them there. But, you know, the idea of the worker co-op that, you know, they're, could have been this revolutionary um, investment being made in these workplaces and that, right? But it, there is arguably some problem there in terms of taking that as kind of the answer to all of this, or that by simply moving into the structure, everything will be fine, right? That having that kind of identity, creating this kind of, um, potentially having this kind of exclusive disjunction on that, that there's something actually producing the the interest in worker co-ops, which to me, you know, I mean, you can even walk in the archaism that, uh, right, I mean, credit unions and that have existed for hundreds of years. Um, and I, I think that is kind of the point that you get these movements across the limits that create these breakthroughs, these whole new configurations and reconfigurations, right, where sexuality is um, um, creating new things, right, the generative process is happening. And at the same time, you also encounter the, the reactionary investments where you have the reproduction um, becoming a problem as well, that that is actually being counter-invested as well. And the, the, the way that they talk about it, um, they have on one side Kerouac, uh, who uh, begins from that and then moves his way into fascism. But I like the other, which is the the person who within the hyper-fascistic or the worst archaisms finds a way to sort of break free. I, an a simple example of that would be Freud with his push towards the idea of the libidinal energy being underlying. They'd, there are shifts that can happen even in the worst archaisms, these odd forces that break free. It's a really fantastic way to sort of think through that. Um, simple paragraph. If anyone has any comments uh, in general, uh, Jean-Claire, I agree. Kerouac. Stunningly uh, beautiful writing that ultimately does lead nowhere. I'd uh, Hunter Thompson, Hunter S. Thompson would be on that list for me too. Fantastically like, interesting, and then holy shit, wait, what? You like Hunter S. Thompson? I like oh, his man. early stuff for sure. All right, on. We've talked about this. No, we haven't. I didn't know you were interested in that. That's that's Burroughs. Oh, Burroughs is fantastic. Burroughs is fantastic. <laughs> There's 
I mean, there's a lot. It's If we want to talk about the American way, it's to do things different than the previous generation until you are in power and then make sure you harden things as tightly as possible and become a fascist. That's, uh, that's what my father's father did. That's what my father did before me. Yeah, the American dream. Yep. As long as I get mine. That's the standard. Yeah, as, long as, I, as long as I get mine. Yep. So that's what it was. Yeah, so that's what it was. Um, all right, uh, next paragraph. I'll let Nomadic finish writing, and I'll see if it's anything. Uh, Johnny Depp shot his ashes into space. Uh, yeah, Johnny, Thompson's, yeah. Johnny Depp. I don't think it went to outer space, though. No, uh, uh, Lord British from Ultima Online, Richard Garriott, got to take his father's ashes into space. Um, Obviously, he went further than Johnny Depp ever could. <laughs> he actually went. He actually went into space. I think he was the first. Like, yeah, people are wild. Um, I don't think Thompson left the ozone. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's uh, move on. Uh, we'll do it. These oscillations of the unconscious, these underground passages from one type of libidinal investment to the other, often the coexistence of the two, form one of the major objects of schizoanalysis. The two poles united by Artaud in the formula, Heliogabulus the Anarchist, quote, the image of all human contradictions and the contradiction in principle. But no passage impairs or suppresses the difference in nature between the two, nomadism and segregation. If we are able to define this difference as that which separates paranoia and schizophrenia, it is because, on the one hand, we have distinguished the schizophrenic process, the breakthrough, from the accidents and relapses that hinder or interrupt it, the breakdown. And because, on the other hand, we have posited paranoia no less than schizophrenia as independent of all familial pseudo-etiologies, so as to make them bear directly upon the social field, every name in history and not the name of the father. On the contrary, the nature of the familial investments depends on the breaks and the flows of the social field as they are invested in one type or another at one pole or the other. And the child does not wait until he is an adult before grasping, underneath father-mother, the economic, financial, social, and cultural problems that cross through a family. His belonging or his desire to belong to a superior or an inferior race, the reactionary or the revolutionary tenor of the familial group with which he is already preparing his ruptures and his conformities. Uh, another great, see, it's my favorite part. These are, some of these paragraphs are just so crisp. Um, well, the, the Ilya Gabalos image from our video is spot on, right? Now, on yeah. one hand, yeah, absolutely breakthrough after breakthrough. On the other hand, absolutely breakdown with breakdown. Yep. Well, and that's, that's, again, to, to get to it, the relapses that hinder or interrupt the process, the process, to keep going back. And it's one of the things that makes it fascinating is to talk about all of this as a process, not a thing. No one is a revolutionary. They're becoming revolutionary or becoming paranoiac. They're moving their way through it because of how they've set these elements up. They've set these things up independent of familial pseudo-etiologies to make them bear directly on the social field. The last line here, I just love that the child immediately understands the investments of the parents, immediately grasps them. It's silly to assume otherwise. 
they're able to know where the parents think the good stuff is and where's the bad stuff, what angers them, what upsets them. These things that flow through the family, these codified realities that parents deal with, the child through the mother father, for sure, still gains all of that. Uh, Dexter knows I hate Walmart, but we go when we don't have money. <laughs> it's like, I can't hide that shit from him. It's, 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 I'm, I'm a emotive person, but even that the average parent is just that you, you just are dealing with what you're dealing with and the kids absorb it. Yeah, right. Because the unconscious is, so, I mean, there's a plurality there, but the unconscious and its auto production is communicative, right? That's the whole point about like the, the signifying chains and that from the first synthesis. So just yes. like you're saying, right. I, you know, going to Walmart with your kid and all that, I mean, to, and I think that is the states we've been getting at, to repress the parents and, and quotes um, unconscious is basically what they're saying is the repression of the social field, right? That which would make the familial possible and that which determines it, right? That would be the thing to be repressed there. And I, I agree with you. I, I don't know how you, <laughs> I don't know how you do that except through maybe like what they're doing here, right? A kind of like familialism. Well, and that's the line Jean-Claire pulls out because the kid already is forming his ruptures and his conformities. Like already the kid is figuring out where it should break from or where it should fall in line. And that shift and that change is something that begins uh, immediately and is, is absolutely just clear. If you've ever been around children, around their parents, uh, do it for long enough, you can see exactly like the kid... The kid, Dexter loves Pikachu. I grew up playing Pokemon. I love Pokemon. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. Uh, I've got my commercial side. I don't care. Uh, love Pokemon. Love Pikachu. He likes the same ones I like. And it's not that I said this is the best. It's that I got excited when he wanted to buy Pikachu versus getting excited when he wanted to buy Charmander. That's just, I, uh, am I supposed to be flat to every, like, it's a shitty example, but... Like, I just imagine if I was a racist, like the, the, the way people are reacting to Tucker Carlson on TV or specific significations around those things, the kid's already falling in line. The kid's already figuring out what he's doing against. The economic, financial, social, and cultural problems that cross through the family are already seen. His belonging or his desire to belong to a superior or inferior race, reactionary or revolutionary tenor of the familial group with which he's already preparing his ruptures and his conformities is laying this out in place. And this is that sort of underlying thing uh, behind all of it. It's, he, 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 he cares more about Charmander right now, if you care about that, Misha. That's because he hasn't discovered Squirtle. No, no, he, he doesn't care about Squirtle. Sorry, no one what? does. Oh, you bastard. But it's, you, it's, first to it's, give me, you first to give me Thompson, now you take away Squirtle. Well, and again, when we talk, but, but here's the thing, this, this, this investment in the social field, he's learning from me and he's learning from my wife and he's learning from not really anyone else, aside from it being COVID time and that being the nature of it, everything's coming through our familial unit, things, things that affect the neighbors, things that affect our town. He feels less just by nature of that beast, but the things that affect our family he feels strongly. He will, it, it imprints upon him. It'll imprint upon my daughter that's coming. These things happen and it's, 
it's it's set upon us as our investments within the social field that get passed on and his job is effectively to find ways to repress the parents or remove them entirely but as as he's going he's already grasping this is already set up he's already set up for all of these things and it's uh, the two poles as they lay out i want to get to the next paragraph because it's a great one um and i'm gonna i'm gonna read straight through um actually a little bit longer uh so prepare what a muddle what an emulsion the family is agitated by backwashes pulled in one direction or another in such a way that the oedipal bacillus takes or doesn't take imposes its mold or doesn't succeed in imposing it pursuing directions of an entirely different nature that traverse the family from the exterior what we mean is that oedipus is born of an application or a reduction to personalized images which presupposes a social investment of a paranoiac type which explains why freud first discovers the familial romance in oedipus while reflecting on paranoia oedipus is a dependency of the paranoiac territoriality whereas the schizophrenic investment commands an entirely different determination a family gasping for breath and stretched out over the dimensions of the social field that does not reclose or withdraw. A family as matrix for depersonalized partial objects, which plunge again and again into the torrential or depleted flux of a historic cosmos, a historic chaos. The matrical fissure of schizophrenia, as opposed to paranoiac castration, and the line of escape, as opposed to the blue line blues oh mother farewell with a long black shoe of farewell with communist party and a broken stocking with your sagging belly with your fear of hitler with your mouth of bad short stories with your belly of strikes and smokestacks with your chin of trotsky and the spanish war with your voice singing for the decaying overbroken workers with your eyes with your eyes of russia with your eyes of no money with your eyes of starving India, with your eyes of Czechoslovakia attacked by robots, with your eyes being led away by policemen to an ambulance, with your eyes with the pancreas removed, with your eyes of appendix operation, with your eyes of abortion, with your eyes of ovaries removed, with your eyes of shock, with your eyes of lobotomy, and your eyes of divorce. It's uh, Allen Ginsberg, by the way, the Kaddish, uh, worth reading. Why these words? Paranoia and schizophrenia, which are like talking oh, birds. That is a new paragraph. Of course it is. We'll stop there then. That's interrupt um, you. I appreciated that. No, no, it's 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 for it's good to interrupt because it's I don't the next one is I think a full page. So anyway, um, uh, his uh, poem, Allen Ginsberg's poem, Kaddish, Kaddish. Um, the Kaddish, as I believe, but um, uh, he's saying goodbye to his mother who was very ill and, um, and in a mental institution and uh, through his youth, uh, this happened. This was kind of what he grew up with. And um, her reality that she was seeing, that she would talk about, was not. Uh, it was that of the Communist Party, her fear of Hitler, um, Trotsky and the Spanish War that she was involved in, which she wasn't, um, 
And then the ending here with your eyes of Russia, no money, starving India, Czechoslovakia attacked by robots. These things that she talked of and spoke of. Uh, it's, the poem's very emotional and difficult, but um, the lines here are incredible uh, towards a very much what we're talking about, how this muddling emulsion of the family uh, comes to communicate to the child things and what he sees and what they learn and how they set up with, uh, on the one hand, the family demanding behavior, um, the paranoiac territoriality with the opposing stretching out everything, a family as matrix for depersonalized partial objects, which is what Ginsburg effectively experienced a great deal in his writing about inside of the Kaddish. Things are whatever they need to be in that time as they move and um, it's a, it's a really beautiful poem. I highly recommend. Uh, we did a reading of it long ago, but I highly recommend it. It's incredible. I leave it open. And you can see the assemblages of desire here, right? The, the part I attach to what we mean is that Oedipus is born of an application or a reduction to personalized images, which presupposes a social investment of the paranoiac type, which explains why Freud first discovers the familiar romance and Oedipus won't reflect the paranoia. Right, the application of these images and that, there's a, a paranoiac uh, territoriality. And certainly you can talk about that in relation to the, uh, the Kaddish and that. But I think you can also talk about it in terms of like, right, the synthesis and that, where the eyes, right, just at the level of the second synthesis, the functionality of the eyes in relation to a flow of desire with Russia, that the eyes are able to see this, that they're doing these kind of Russian things, if you like, but also going to Czechoslovakia, also going to the Spanish War, right? Now we're in the U.S. kind of thing. Um, the different things, the different capacities that the eyes are, are using here in terms of desire and that, as opposed to like the familial image of, um, you know, the forlorn, um, taboo, off-limits mother. Um, I have a question about the last sentence of page 278, when Please. they talk about the line escape as opposed to the blue line, because I could only think of the, <laughs> of the blue lives matter flag, unfortunately, but I don't really, uh, yeah, get the reference of blue lines with the blues. Um. Do you have it? No, no I, go I for it. So we had someone on who explained to us it's this reference that everybody in France gets. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't have a great answer for you here because I don't know. Ah, oh, I, I do. I, I actually oh, Yeah, I okay. Actually, yeah, I, I didn't know this. It's so, so, the, the Vogue Mountains in France are often referred to as the blue line. They're the edge of the state. Uh, they are the hardened line. So... The line that they have here, the metrical fissure of scherzenoia as opposed to the paranoiac castration, a line of escape as opposed to the blue line, the line that marks the edge of the state, which is, by the way, back to that sovereignty and authoritarian state. So that's the, that's the reference that they're making. It makes 100% sense. And I find it really funny how that rhymes with current day America. Oh, dear. Uh, oh, dear. I mean, the blue line of the state, how more literal can it get? Uh, the fact when you posted thin blue line, I was like, that's not the reference, but that's the reference now. 
So it's like, I guess it works now. Like it's welcome to 50 years later, nothing changes. Yay. It's a, I'm going to post a link to it because it's a thing. We had someone who actually lived in France. Like, oh, that's what that was. I'm like, oh shit. Okay. That actually, uh, because they mentioned it a few times also in uh, Deleuze uses it as an allegory a lot um, in a lot of different things. So it's a thing worth knowing if you're reading up because he just says blue line and it doesn't mean literally a blue line. Um, also, it doesn't make sense that they call it blue line, but I don't really care. Because uh, I, I, I think it was like Terrence or somebody was trying to say like, they were suggesting that that's why the, the translators put in the blues there. They were trying to make, they were trying to make a point that Americans might be able to understand. I, I think it felt pretty flat, but <laughs> super flat. So, and because there's, there's a lot of color behind this, um, the, as the link says, um, the Alsace Lorraine region, uh, separated the Vogue from that, that area. So and it happened specifically along the Franco German border prior to world war uh, one. Um, and so it's a, the reference here very specifically is the historicity of where our land used to be. So it, we're talking hyper paranoiac. Like this is like wild. This isn't just uh, the liberal, oh no, I believe in the state. This is someone saying, hey, that's where France is actually supposed to fucking be if not for those fucking Germans who took our land from us. That's, what is, that's what's being said here. That's what the paranoiac here is referring to when they say the blue line. Um, the line of escape would be the opposite of that. So interesting. I've, I've known about that area my whole life, but never thought about it like that. And I think that's really interesting. Um, but also blue is just a, also the national color of France. So it's the, it's the thing that you refer to if you're proud of your country. You're proud of blue, of the blues. Oh, well, then maybe that's what the blues means. I've never heard someone say that about France, the blues, really? Well, I mean, in French, you, if, you, if, you are, if you are chanting for your sports team, you say, go blues. Like you say, allez les, allez les bleus. It, why? Uh, because they, are, they wear blue shirts. That's their, like, that's their national color. For example, in the Netherlands, our national color is orange. Well, I, I got to so, tell you, Misha, if you're explaining yeah. soccer to Americans, this is a bad idea. Okay. Blue yeah. has been used in the heraldry of the French monarchy since the 12th century. Oh, the fleur-de-lis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Ah. Yeah, so it's the, it's the national color, like, from the, from the uh, yeah, from the dynasty. Um. Now, now that you're saying this, so that's so now that you're saying this, because it's really common when they, when you talk about like gourmet French tea or elements, is they add the blue cornflowers in as one of the like symbols of it, uh, like blue being this underlying. All right, I'm sort of yeah. Well, that makes that makes more sense because again, now we're talking about to say the whole sentence, the line of escape as opposed to the blue line, the blues. This which which again is that hyper nationalistic. Uh, paranoiac reaction. So that, that flows too. Thank you, Misha. Interesting. Yeah, and it's also interesting that the blue color stayed even after France famously um, got rid of their monarchy. Uh, the blue stayed. Yeah. I mean, sorry, I, I, people uh, know about the French Revolution. 
right? Interesting. No, I've never heard of it. Okay. That's when they went from blue to red, right? Well, with... <laughs> that was a joke. You know that, was a joke. that was a joke, yeah, yeah. Misha. That was a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because you had, in the French Revolution, you have the red and the blues, right? The, 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 those are two parties in the revolution. But, well, sorry, sorry, never mind. But also, blood is red. Well, okay, sorry, sorry. But Napoleon also wore blue, right? You, you well, can't explain my joke, man. It, it makes it worse. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, we're going we're gonna, to... So, at that moment, we are now going to pull back. Uh, we are going to end our reading today because we're about halfway through, and I think it's worth us taking the time uh, next week. Same uh, edible time, same edible channel. We will talk through the rest of this section. This has been a wonderful reading. Thank all of you for joining very much. Um, I look forward to next week, where we'll be continuing from uh, the end of the Kaddish, uh, which again, go read. There's some wonderful readings on YouTube. Thank all of you for joining. Bye-bye.